Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, folks. David Minconi here, host of Carolina Calling. Before we get to today's episode, I wanted to tell you about another project that's close to my heart. My new book, Oh, Didn't They Ramble, Rounder Records and the Transformation of American Roots Music. I wanted to write the definitive history of the three founders of Rounder Records, a music label founded in the wake of the 60s American folk revival. Rounder went on to shape the modern history of an entire genre, with a roster that has included Alison Krauss and J.D. Crow, to George Thorogood, Bela Fleck, and Billy Strings. It's out now, and you can get it wherever books are sold. Or discover more at uncpress.org. When the late great Doc Watson died more than a decade ago, he left behind a musical legacy that still resonates and inspires to this day. It was in the spring, one sunny day, my sweetheart left me, Lord, she went away. Born on March 3, 1923, in the Watauga County mountain town of Deep Gap, North Carolina, Arthel Doc Watson was sightless since infancy. He became a professional musician simply because it was the most practical way for him to make a living as a blind man, and he played flat-pick guitar as fast and clean as anyone ever has. Doc was a mentor for multiple generations of musicians. You know, he inspired so many people. That was the renowned jazz guitarist Bill Frizzell. It seems that guitar players have learned something from Doc in every style imaginable, well beyond folk music. Clarence White or Tony Rice or there's incredible musicians that I think of him as the, you know, the roots. He started this whole thing, you know. Merlefest, the annual springtime festival that Doc started in 1988 to honor his late son and playing partner Merle Watson, remains one of the most important must-plays on the U.S. Roots Music Festival circuit. It happens the last weekend of every April on the grounds of Wilkes Community College in Wilkesboro, North Carolina, and Doc's memory casts a powerful shadow. Doc not being at Merlefest, there is a huge hole. That's legendary resonator guitarist Jerry Douglas, a Merlefest regular. I feel that more than maybe somebody who's coming there for the first time because they weren't there when Doc was there. 
and where Doc held court on the main stage and had all these musicians come out and he would know you were there after one or two notes. He would know who it was. Merlefest has helped launch the careers of some of the most notable songwriters and performers in modern bluegrass, roots, and folk music, including the Avett Brothers, Chatham County Line, Tiff Merritt, and the winner of the inaugural songwriting competition in 1993, Gillian Welch. Everything is free now. I just loved him to pieces, and um, the world loves him too. In what would have been his 100th year on Earth, Doc's influence remains current enough that it's hard to imagine he won't continue to stay relevant for the foreseeable future. In his absence, he has become as iconic as Pete Seeger or Woody Guthrie, or even the Beatles and the Stones. He's not going away. (laughs) He made it to the top shelf, and uh, he's going to stay there. Even if it doesn't pay. From the bluegrass situation and come here in North Carolina, this is Carolina Calling, exploring the history and music of North Carolina from the people who made it. I'm David Menconi, and this is a special episode about the legacy of Doc Watson and Merlefest. Doc Watson started out playing harmonica as a child, and he learned his first few guitar chords from a schoolmate at the School for the Blind in Raleigh. After his school days, he got by busking for change on the streets of Boone and even played in a rockabilly band. Doc came to the attention of folklorist Ralph Rensler in 1960 when he was backing up old-time legend Clarence Tom Ashley, and he soon became one of the top acts on the folk revival circuit. Though never a big record seller, Doc became one of the 20th century's most influential musicians through a combination of aw shucks practicality and musical virtuosity. He won just about every accolade there is in music and left his mark on multiple generations of musicians simply by providing an inspiring example of what was possible in life as well as music. Doc never met a a stranger. That's B.W. Towns, Doc's Merlefest co-founder. And in his own words, he was just people. I'm not a star, I'm just a person. In 1949, Doc's life changed forever when his first child was born. Named for Doc's fellow guitar legend Merle Travis, Eddie Merle Watson was destined to grow up around music, so it was perhaps inevitable that he'd play himself. When he did, he was very nearly his father's equal, serving as Doc's longest-running and best-playing companion. Doc wanted to be involved in everything that Merle was involved in. They were a pair. Again, Jerry Douglas. But, uh, uh, you know, and I think that they also had a different kind of a relationship where he was the son of the giant, you know, so he was always in the shadow of. But he also started, you know, other bands, Frosty Morn and and things like that, where he could he could showcase his own abilities, you know, without his giant father being there. Doc used to insist that his son was the better player which most agree was an exaggeration. But Merle was a great player, and as close to his father's equal as any among his generation of guitarists. Merle was something different than Doc. Had a, had a, had a different tack on the whole guitar, and especially slide. You know, he played slide, Doc did not play slide. But Merle was more of a forward Dwayne Allman fan, 
and uh, you know, slide guitar, southern rock kind of a guy, uh, a giant in that world. He was also his father's traveling companion on the road, which can be a lonely place. He was a really nice fella, really helpful to Doc. You could count, I mean, if he was around, it was like having Big Brother there for you, you know? He would look out for you. The same, you know, he got that from Doc. Got that from Doc. Doc was always trying to trying to help everybody. And Doc always wanted the ground level to be equal for everybody. He wanted a, a level playing field. And Merle saw it that way. We all saw it that way. Tragically, Merle died in a tractor accident in October of 1985, and it devastated his parents. Doc was so bereft in the dark days following his son's death that he even considered giving up music. But the story goes that the night before Merle's funeral, he appeared to his father in a dream and urged him to keep going. And so Doc did. And am I born to Still, it wasn't easy for Doc to carry on. Fortuitously, however, something came along to rekindle Doc's spark. Doc would want everybody to remember his son, Eddie Merle Watson. Again, B.W. Towns. When I first asked him to do a concert in the Walker Center in 1987 and that we would name the garden in his honor, he grabbed my knee, said, absolutely, I'll be glad to do that. Gave him a little squeeze. He said, but I want you to name the garden in memory of my son, Eddie Merle Watson. And so I, I think Doc would first want people to remember Merle Fest for his son Merle, and secondly, for him. But more importantly, I think he would want to be remembered for the music of Doc and Merle Watson. Merlefest, which began in 1988 as a benefit show to fund a Garden of the Senses memorial on the campus of Wilkesboro Community College. Doc and Frederick B. W. Towns founded Merlefest, which continues to the present day. He was my ears to the music. I guess I was his eyes to what a festival might be. Doc's spirit is certainly with us at every Merlefest and will be especially at this 35th celebrating his 100th birthday. You know, the Merle Watson Memorial Garden of the Senses has as its last sculpture that we installed the music wall with Doc and Merle and then the various music instruments sculptured into brick. And I sit back in the gazebo there often watching and uh, musicians will come, get their picture made there, little children and families get their picture made there. It, just, it seems like so many artists, when they are on the stage, any one of the stages at Merlefest will just bring up Doc's name or the memory of Doc, and that helps to keep the, the spirit alive as well. Pretty much everybody who is anybody in the Americana and Americana-adjacent world has played Merlefest, but a handful of figures stand as ultimate ambassadors for it, including Jerry Douglas. The acclaimed resonator guitarist has played every Merlefest save one, he missed the festival that happened in the fall of 2021 due to the COVID pandemic. The first Doc Festival that I went to, the first Merle Fest that I went back to after Doc's passing, he was bigger than life to me. 
Everywhere I looked, I saw Doc in some way, and I heard him on the stage all the time, and he was just ever-present. He just, I was looking for him. You know, it was, I didn't hear him, didn't see him, and it made me really want to see him and really want to hear him. He swung such a huge bat at that festival. You know, he wasn't, it wasn't just in Merle's name. It was, everybody showed up there for Doc to play with Doc Watson, to be near Doc Watson, to be in his ears, you know, and to be recognized by him. It was a big deal. And that's why we all showed up for the first festival. It was, uh, you know, he wanted to create a, a garden for the blind at the Wilkes Community College there. And I'm pretty sure we did that the first year, or at least covered it by the second year. And then the festival just grew and grew and grew. But it was just a place where you would go and hang out with Doc. I remember dropping James Taylor off in, in Doc's dressing room and then leaving, watching them meet and then just leaving them alone because I wanted James to get that feeling that I knew was coming. You know, you're, you're sitting there with this guy who's, you know, even for James, would be larger than life, you know. And uh, it, it, was, uh, it was something that didn't happen to everybody. And we were very, very lucky that that we were some of the people that got to do that. Merlefest has provided stages and breakthrough opportunities for literally thousands of acts over the years, many of whom have gone on to big things. One such performer is singer-songwriter Gillian Welch, whose first significant public notice was winning Merlefest's inaugural Chris Austin Songwriting Contest in 1993. She has since gone on to a much-acclaimed, award-winning career. It's funny, I was trying to remember how I even heard about the contest, I was thinking back and I don't even know why I entered it. You know, I'd I'd only been in Nashville about nine months and I'm going to guess that I saw an advertisement in Bluegrass Unlimited, which is a magazine I pretty much would have been reading cover to cover back in 92, 93. And, um, yeah, I just took it into my head to enter. I only had a couple songs that I'd written, but I entered two of my newest songs, Orphan Girl in the gospel category and Tear My Still House Down in the country category. And Orphan Girl didn't even get accepted into the finals, but Still House made it to the finals and won. So, yeah. It seemed like that really sent you on your way and, and helped a lot. Was was that the case? I mean, uh, you know, obviously one one never knows all the stars that are aligning as you uh, start on your path. But it felt quite phenomenal, really, to Dave and I. So that spring of 93, I win the Chris Austin and every winner got to perform their winning song, you know, get on stage and play. You know, we get up and we play our one song. And it was just the best possible introduction to that entire community I could have ever asked for. And that really became our community of musicians and people and promoters and concert goers and everybody. So then the next year, 
we go back to the festival just as concert goers. We weren't playing, you know, I wasn't going to enter another song. We just go and I'm hearing bands were playing our songs in their sets. You know, I'm, I'm hearing my name spoken off the main stage and Tim and Molly O'Brien and Nashville Bluegrass Band, they're covering our songs, you know. So it was just, it felt like a weird bluegrass dream. Did you meet Doc in those early years? Oh, yes. Yes. We had some kind of mutual acquaintances. And funnily enough, the gentleman who was taking Doc around at that time, you know, Doc needed someone to walk with him, lead him downstairs and and whatnot, was a wonderful man by the name of Charles Welch. And we always wondered if we were related. So from the time that I met Doc and um, met Charles, we would always talk. And we ended up playing some shows with him. We, We opened some shows for Doc very early on. And he was so wonderful. He he would always call us, you kids, you kids be careful out there. He would always say as we were leaving, he'd always ask us which road we were going to take, <laughs> which was funny because of course, I don't think a doc is much of a driver, but I guess he knew his way around. He, you know, he knew where he was and where the roads were going. So he always wanted to check our route. <laughs> Would would you consider him a mentor? No, only because I didn't get to know him that that well. I didn't know him, you know, like I knew John Hartford or even like I knew Ralph Stanley. Our paths didn't cross quite that much, but he was so warm and so generous. And so the times when we did get to work with him, he was so easy to be around and talk with. But, you know, was he aware of what we were doing as our career progressed? I don't know. I mean, he, he did keep having us back to his festival year after year after year after year. And we moved from, you know, the cabin stage to one of the larger stages. And then I remember the first time we got to play on the main stage. So, um, I, I don't know. It's it's only in hindsight, you know, that I realize sometimes people were thinking about us and keeping tabs on us more than I knew. <laughs> so maybe, you know, maybe he knew what we were up to, the kids. <laughs> the kids, I love that. Did he ever offer you guys like guitar playing advice? I mean, did did he and David sit and have conversations about, you know, licks and things like that? He loved Dave's playing and was fascinated by Dave's guitar. The The first show we ever opened for him, he was getting done with sound check and we were walking on to do our sound check. And uh, he walked right up to Dave and practically put his head in Dave's guitar and said, now, son, what kind of guitar is that? You know, Dave is so like wonderfully open and complimentary of other guitar players that have influenced him and will, you know, readily confess 
when he's what I'll call stolen licks from them. So I do recall Dave and Doc sitting backstage and Dave saying to Doc, like, oh, I, I, I took this from you and he'd play and Doc would laugh and he'd say, that's wonderful. He's like, that's, that doesn't sound like me. <laughs> and uh, he'd say, well, here's how I play that. And he would play and then Dave would laugh. And so, of course, that's, that's how it goes with musicians. You know, you think you're copying exactly, but of course you never can. And what you're really doing is building your own style. And I remember Dave and Norman Blake almost having that exact same sit down, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's a wonderful thing. And I'll just never forget the first time he heard Dave playing, you know, Dave's Epiphone Archtop in person. And I think Dave, even, I think he even asked to play it. I think Dave handed it over to him and he played it for a moment. But that was a great moment of hearing, of watching Doc listen to Dave and Dave's guitar. It was, it, it makes me smile even just thinking about it now. That first show that he saw us play, I mean, he, I wasn't sure that he was listening to us, that he had come out, because uh, I kept kind of sneaking looks over into the wings to see if he was sitting over there listening to us, and I didn't see him. And then we came off stage, <laughs> and I almost ran smack into him. He'd been there the whole time, but he was right behind one of the curtains. You know, he wasn't in a sight line because he didn't need to see. <laughs> he was just listening to us, you know. So anyway. Anything else you might want to say about Doc and his place in the world or legacy or how he's remembered? I just, all the times I saw him play, I just, I was so moved by his, I don't know what to call it, his honesty and his, lack of glitz it wasn't he that he wasn't a showman of course he was a showman he could tear a flat pick and number to shreds but it wasn't glitzy it was all about the music and I think that really went in with me and also just his feel maybe because I'm a rhythm player but Doc to me would never sacrifice like feel and groove and time for any flashy lick of any sort you could always dance when doc was playing and i learned so many songs from him you know just wonderful songs he's such a great curator of the folk canon and beautiful versions of of the songs. It's a lesson too late for the learning Made of sand Made of sand In a week You could always dance when Doc was playing. Of all the legacies, memories, and influences Doc Watson left behind on All Who Followed, that might be the most telling. And even though he's been gone for more than a decade now, the memory of his music will still be a beacon on the dance floor for anyone who ever heard it. You know that was the last thing on my mind. 
I'm David Mincounty, and thanks for listening to this episode of Carolina Calling. Carolina Calling is a production of the Bluegrass Situation in Come Here, North Carolina. Our theme music is the song Eerie Fiddler, written and recorded by Andrew Marlin. The roots of American music run deep in North Carolina. Learn more by visiting comeherenc.com. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, and rate us wherever you get your podcasts, as it really helps us introduce the show to new listeners. Discover more Roots Music podcasts at thebluegrasssituation.com. I'm David Mincounty. Thanks for listening. <laughs>